This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of meaningful sport. As today's guest has noted, human movement is of great diversity, both in form and meaning. However, in contemporary public policy, a quantitative and instrumental approach is the predominant perspective. From this view, physical activity needs to be promoted as a means to prevent various threats to physical and mental health produced by our sedentary lifestyles. Today, we explore alternative framings that could help us imagine human movement in a different way. What if these activities, in addition to the well-documented health benefits, could help us develop a deeper sense of environmental interconnectedness and the disposition to live and act in more sustainable ways? I'm delighted to be discussing these questions with Professor Sigmund Lowland from the Norwegian School of Sport Sciences. Professor Lowland has published extensively in the area of sport philosophy and ethics, including the questions about meaning in movement and ecological perspectives on sport. Welcome to the podcast, Sigmund. It's really a pleasure for me to have you here today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And I think it would be really nice to briefly, as a start, touch your article that is 15 years ago, I think now, Morality, Medicine and Meaning Towards an Integrated Justification of Physical Education. So I wanted to take this as a start because that's something really at the center of the podcast and what I've tried to do with this program and talking to people about different perspectives on meaning and movement. And your work is one of those. Um, this paper is one of these that I often take up when I discuss the topic uh, with students, for example. So maybe you can provide me a little bit of um, background of the article and the three justifications that you developed. Why do we think that physical education is something that has of value in our society? Oh, big question. Um well, our educational systems uh, have this vision of uh, educating the whole human being. And obviously, we are bodies, we move, and it's in and with and through our bodies we live the world, we sense, we perceive, we think, and all these uh, processes are embodied. So in an educational system, you have to take this into account, and this is one in my view, a basic premise for education as, as a whole, that we are, em we are bodies, we are embodied, we, are, we think, perceive, understand, discuss with um, a fundamental embodied being in the world. So physical education 
puts an emphasis on the exploration of our embodiment in terms of movement in particular. And this is a main thing in the education of a human being, obviously, and it's all interconnected, of course, with the embodied exploration of the world uh, through movement. There is also development of perception, cognition, thinking, reflection. It's all interconnected. So physical education education is just as important part as mathematics, uh, language, history. Um, so it's this idea of an integrated and holistic view of education where physical education is a natural and an obvious and an obligatory part, I would say. Yes, but this perspective that you now talk about is maybe not the way that we often talk about physical education these days and i think it extends to physical activity as well so very much we now focus on this health enhancing perspective it it does and the article you mentioned about physical activity looks at different ways historically but also in contemporary times different ways uh, of how to justify and develop a legitimation of the physical education field. And and I run through, as you said, uh, three different arguments. And I look at their history, uh, I critique them somehow, and I try to interconnect them in a final justification. So the morality view is somehow the classic view with the development of of sport in 19th century England, the idea of sport developing moral virtues, linked to ideals of masculinity, the ideal of the public schools where sports should function in the education of muscular Christianity. So through hard exercise sports, team sports, boxing, you develop the virtues necessary for these young men traveling the world, defending the British Empire. So Morality linked to masculinity, linked to imperialism, linked to colonialism. You find these ideas in most national curriculum at at that time, uh, where physical education was introduced in schools or for soldiers. Uh, It was linked to the idea of develop patriotism, uh, virtues linked to national sentiments and so on and so forth. In Norway, I guess in Finland, I guess in Switzerland, as in England. So that is the morality view. And we all know that this can be discussed. We know empirically that sport can develop what we would consider moral virtues, but it can definitely also develop them with the opposite. It all depends. So the morality justification is really not uh, sustainable. Then gradually, the health justification became the important one. Development of modern society, obesity, Uh, sedentary lifestyles, physical education as a means towards this negative development of health. And that that turned uh, even more the physical education field into an instrument in the social welfare politics of the state. Again, it's, it's not wrong. We all know that movement is important to health, regular movement. Uh, we know a lot about this from epidemiology and from the health sciences. But again, this instrumentalization of the field is problematic. I mean, imagine a pill that could fix your health. You don't need physical education at all. So it says very little about the value of the field. It's a 
extremely reductionist approach to physical education. There, was, there are also problems linked to the health justification, the body as an instrument, um, body images with, uh, you know, uh, what do you call them, a deviant body images, you have eating disorders, you have megarexy, young boys want to become bigger and bigger and bigger. So all these uh, following problems with, among other things, a strong instrumentalization of the body is a problem with this justification. So you have to return in some way to what McIntyre will call the internal goods of a practice. What is in the practice in itself? How do you develop meaning? How can embodied movement, how can movement become meaningful? How do you explore meaning, what it means to be a human being? What, it, what you can achieve together with others, what you can achieve by training yourself to establish a meaningful relationship to the body and its possibilities in the world. This, in my view, is the core idea in physical education. And if you prioritize meaning construction, then the health and morality perspectives can be integrated. Because in the exploration of meaning, you explore morality. You explore, as I said, your relationships to other, your relationship to yourself, cooperation, competition, tension, opposition versus uh, collaboration, and so on and so forth. And in regular movement, you also, in, in pushing your body, you also explore health and uh, what is good for you, basically. So morality and health are relevant, obviously. Of course they are. Yeah. But in this more extensive framework of meaning construction or exploration of meaning and at the deepest level, actually, physical education, as all education, has this uh, existential dimension. Who am I? What can I achieve? What can I do together with others? How can I relate to others? And uh, as I write about in this other article you'd like to discuss with me today, how do I relate to my environment? not just my human environment, but my environment in general. Yes. So I think this brings us a perfect link to this more later work where you talk about the anthropocentric and non-anthropocentric perspectives and how we can think about human movement through these two different lenses. So basically the idea whether we think of, for example, sport and exercise as a way of bringing something good for ourselves, you know, to enhance our well-being and maybe our relationships to others. And then this non-anthropocentric where we are really thinking ourselves as a part of this whole. And so if you think back on your writing, can this meaning perspective, is it still anthropocentric or can we extend that to include this non-anthropocentric view as well? I think we can. I think this ex this embodied exploration of the world, as you find in PE or sports or outdoor education, um, as you find in movement in general, uh, is perhaps the most obvious way to connect ecologically to the world. And with ecological connection, I mean a connection and an interconnection with the world where you sense and experience you being a part of something much more. 
you being an interconnected unit, you may say, in a myriad in myriads of units and knots and uh, uh, life forms, uh, landscapes, uh, objects, uh, uh, urban uh, environments, you are interconnected with the world. And the most clear and immediate experience of this interconnection, I think, does not come through intellectual practices where you try to convince people about living sustainably. The first experience of this deep interconnection comes through exploring the world as embodied beings. The, the eco-philosopher Ananes has this very interesting description from his first deep experience, his first deep ecological experience. He he's a small boy. He is on the shore, you know, on the beach. He stands with his feet in the water, only up to his ankles. It's really shallow there. He he bends down and he looks down at his feet, and while looking, you see all these life forms that you never you never really observe when you go for a swim, for instance, you run into the water. He stops, he looks down, and suddenly experiences lot, a lot of life down there. And he gets this deep sense of being interconnected, being interconnected with these life forms. And he gets this deep sense of being part of something much bigger than himself. This sounds like a religious experience, but it's really very material, very concrete, very basic experience. I guess most people have these moments, uh, whether you look into, uh, into the sky at night, or you look at the stars, or whether you look at the, a beautiful scenery, nature, or whether you look down to the, all the micro levels of life down there at the shallow waters in the beach. Uh, these are moments that we tend to run pass by in modern life, but these are small moments of what some would call ecologization. It's an experience where you sense deep interconnections to something much more than yourself. And I think the most, the most concrete, this very, they're concrete and embodied. And if we can build on them, educational-wise, if we can use these experiences as something very important in our in physical education as well, this is a, a first step towards what I argue towards some kind of ecological consciousness that is less anthropocentric. It's not all about me. And, and the survival of the human species in the future. It's about the survival of the whole ecosystem and all life forms and even landscapes. Mm -hmm. Yes, it reminds me of William James and the varieties of religious experience where he's opening up this thinking of how we encounter the mystical in, the, in this world where religion is not necessarily the frame of reference for people anymore. Interesting. And so with this ecological perspective, this is something that is increasingly, at the moment we are living in the COVID crisis, but it might pass in some years, but the ecological crisis is something that will be with us for a very long time. And at the moment, just talking to many colleagues and so many people are thinking, how can we contribute 
when we are working in the field of sport and exercise and movement culture. And you have been working with these things actually for quite a long time alongside all the other topics that you work with. So can you maybe just give a little overview of how your own work and thinking around these things has evolved over the years? And then we can come to this latest work where you are using the human movement ecology and how that concept might be something that can help us to contribute to thinking around these issues. You know, when uh, as a student, I I uh, we I listened to Arne Ness, the eco philosopher, and his lectures, and and he, I read his philosophy, his eco philosophy, deep ecology, and my uh, this inspired me. My colleague Gunnar Breivik introduced these perspectives. Arne Ness came and gave lectures, and this I found really inspiring. I did not come from the outdoor tradition, outdoor education field. I came from sport. And I thought, what is in this perspective for, for sport? In, uh, in deep ecology, in the eco-philosophical movement, or in the eco-philosophical tradition, there is a deep skepticism to competition. So my first go at this was, perhaps competition is kind of an advanced uh, way of collaboration and coordination between individuals and also in relation to nature. Good competition, that is. Perhaps there is an ecological uh, potential also in competition, whereas either you compete with other persons, if it's a good competition, there is underneath the competition, there is a deep kind of collaboration. You agree on certain standards, on certain rules, uh, in, in direct competitions, you interact on the actions of the others. There is a deep kind of interaction. And also in nature sports, there is a deep, interactive, interconnected way of coping with nature. I wrote about skiing at the competitions in skiing, downhill skiing, for instance. This deep, at, at, at expertise levels, this deep, interconnected movement practice where you transcend the limits of your physical body, uh, technology, your equipment becomes somehow extensions of your body, the poles extensions of the arms, the skis extensions of the, feel, of the feet, uh, through which you sense and interact with the surface, the snow, the terrain, the hill. So there is a deep ecological dimension in also performance sports. At when in in mas when you master this in mastery when you fix the technique when you learn technique it can be at low levels of performance your first successful turn suddenly you you solve the riddle you understand the movement you experience meaning there and then in deep interaction with the environment and in a competition at a high level if you think instrumentally and mechanistically probably you won't perform. You have to go into this unified experience of mastery, which is an ecological experience. So to cut a long story short, uh, I argue that also in this heavily criticized from an ecological point of view, competitive sport, there are deep ecological experiences. The other side of the coin is the sustainability of the elite sports system, the use of resources, uh, the emission of climate, uh, gas, uh, carbon dioxide, all these things. So by all means, this is an important dimension too. But this ecologization, this understanding of being connected to something much more 
than yourself can also be found in competition and in high-performance sport, by all means. So this was my first take on it. Yes, challenging this dichotomy in terms of competition is something that is kind of aggressive and self-centered and disconnected compared to this non-competitive activities in the nature. Yeah, Competition can be aggressive, dividing, excluding, uh, non-ecological by all means, but it can also be the very opposite. It's ambiguous. Uh, then I used this idea, I turned more into the idea of sustainability and I looked at the structures of uh, various kinds of sport and I, I, I wrote a critique of the idea of the sport record. I said typically if you look, if you look at sustainability from the perspective of new generations uh, having the same opportunity to meet their needs, to live uh, flourishing lives as the current generation. You can look at sports, uh, different categories of sport. So a typical record sport like the 100-meter dash in track and field would be non-sustainable because you measure performance in exact mathematical physical entities and every entity, every tenth or hundred of a second used by one generation of sprinters is lost to the next generation of sprinters. They have to perform better than the previous generation. And the point here is that the, the resource is limited because the resource is time, exactly measured time. So, and the next generation thereafter, for every record set, there is reduced resource for the next generation. And this means that the next generation has to do even more extreme things to perform better. And especially on a sport like the 100 meter dash, there is no big technological issue. So I, the record sports are non-sustainable. Whereas games, where you measure performance in game-specific entities, goals, points, games, sets, uh, are sustainable in a sense because the next generation of players have the same resource available as the current one. Although we discuss who is the best football player ever or the best team ever, these are interesting discussions because there is no uh, objective criteria really like there would be in the record sports. So every new generation of game players have the same opportunities of performance as the previous generation. Also because competition is always interactive. You have to react and interact with the acts and tactics of the opposition. So this would be sustainable uh, performance standards. So I argue that these sports, the record sports is just a very concrete and embodied example of uh, the reason for the ecological crisis, which is the quest for infinite growth, infinite systems. Whereas games open up for infinite growth in infinite systems. So they are to a larger extent sustainable. This is the very logic of the competition. And then I, I, I discussed how to transform the record sports that are beautiful sports. These are the classic movements, aren't they? The jump, the throw, the run, the stride. Can they be? be transformed into game-like activities and be made sustainable. Whether this is a, a successful argument or not, that can be discussed, but this was a mm -hmm. test to see if you can 
use the idea of sustainability to transform sports with non-sustainable performance ideals into sustainable performance ideals. Which is very difficult to imagine track and field or athletics, which is such a traditional sport. These are traditional sports and, and, and sports are conservative which is a good thing with good thing with sports. Everything changes in modern society, but soccer is soccer anyway. <laughs> and a rule change in soccer is very difficult to impose. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what then also psychologists are worried about, that certain sports with this record logic are becoming unsustainable for athletes psychologically because they have to be fully focused from a very early age and train excessively and we come to the other topic of your expertise which is doping can you improve anymore in certain sports without some extra means because it's already become so extreme with those exactly yeah that's part of the non-sustainable i call these sports vulnerable Mm -hmm. the vulnerability thesis would be the the more one-sided in terms of performance requirement if you test only one quality, like speed, the human capability of speed, that makes this, and that this is a biomotor capacity that can be manipulated physiologically, that is a vulnerable sport. Yeah. Whereas if you introduce complexity in the system, uh, technical and tactical complexity, for instance, it's less vulnerable. You can compensate for a certain lack of speed with good technique and tactical insight, like in soccer, and that the sport is less vulnerable to excesses and to doping would be my hypothesis. There is more to lose and less to gain with doping use in soccer. There, are, Of course, there is doping use in soccer, but as I say, there is it has a less impact because there are so many complex parts of the performance. There is no injection that can give you better taste tactical understanding that has to be learned in practice but there are injections and pills that can enhance your muscle growth and enhance your explosive power and your speed yeah so if we think of these questions from a more ecological perspective it's the logic that underlies these sports that is part big part of the problem that is a big part of the problem the internal problem of the sport yeah. And then looking at them as social systems from the outside and, and testing them based on the standards of uh, pollution, um, the impact on climate, that is, uh, that is also, of course, a very important critical review of the sports from a sustainability point of view. But my analysis initially was linked to the very core logic of the activity. What, what does record sport, what is the message of record sports? in a society much more concerned with sustainable practices versus games and how can record sports perhaps be transformed into in in line with the sustainability ethos of modern society Mm -hmm. and i think this provides a perfect end for the first part of our conversation and in the second part we'll focus on human movement ecology and imagining urban walking from this perspective. So thanks so much and uh, looking forward to the second part. 
Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.